BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. All right, we've been waiting for it. Our eyes are ready for a reprieve from the courts, but... (laughs) Aside from that bit of foible, what did you make of the first official night of in-season tournament? I think I'm just going to call it an NBA Cup, NBA Cup games. It's hard to know right now whether all of the explanation here is because they were NBA Cup games. But overall, it, a competitive, entertaining slate. There were some exceptions, but generally we saw a a better more competitive version of teams including like who played like for the Cavs we'll of course talk about that whether that was just J- Jared Allen was ready which is what i'd assume rather than like they held him for the cup but i mean a really fun slate of games i mean something where you and i bounced between a series of them on playback and then we needed to go back to watch other things because there was so much going on no it was excellent and yeah the number one question of just how good were the games the games were great teams tried pretty hard now were guys going like crazy minutes and the Memphis Portland game there there are some guys <laughs> who are over 40 in regulation i mean but Memphis is just fiending for a victory right now and Portland uh, hadn't been home in a, in a while they're look, looking for a three game win streak so that was actually a good game I want, I want to talk about that same and i thought Denver came out and played really hard after that embarrassing loss in Minnesota so that they clearly were fired up Dallas was 4 and 0 they brought Kyrie Irving back for this game, I think generally there weren't really any of these kind of mystery absences for anything like rest or, or some such. And that's partially due to the way it's set up, right? No back to backs in front of these or behind. So there's definitely the ability to put at least a little bit more of a focus on it. So Shea was really the only guy I thought who was out. Like Nick Claxton has been out with an ankle sprain already. Did anybody else really miss these games? Daniel Gafford came back for the Wizards. <laughs> I can not remember. not I, that I can recall. I want to look up what Shea's injury was again, but yeah, I don't think there was really. It's a left knee sprain. Ah, okay, so that's like seems like a real injury. I, I mean, we'll see, right? If he comes back and he plays the next five games in a row, then maybe your eyebrows raise slightly, but seems like a pretty legitimate injury for him. And by the way, that game was amazing anyway, so you can't complain about that too much. So yeah, I, I thought the teams tried pretty hard, and it just turned out that some of these games were close. Another question that I had was, if it was a blowout, would a team try to run up the score at all? Uh, that didn't really happen in the Miami-Washington game, which was a blowout. Washington actually came back, outscored Miami 33-20 to in the fourth quarter to get within seven in the end. But that in that group, that's actually going to be kind of interesting because who blows out Washington by the most might be the team that actually <laughs> ends up. 
I mean, I I can't wait for that to become a storyline. Actually, I think that's going to be really interesting because that that group is Bucks, Knicks, Heat, Wizards, and Hornets. So that's and the Knicks lost. So you know, or even if it's uh, Miami, might have a chance to qualify as one of the wild card as the wild card team in the East by just blowing out the Wizards or whoever ends up uh, beating them. So that that was really fascinating. Uh, any other just kind of general thoughts? I mean, they're gonna, there were a few slippages on the floor, and that's the type of thing that they'll need to straighten yeah. out. I only I only saw it in the in the Pacers Cavs. I saw one in another game, but it might not have been related to the floor. It just I saw a guy fall, yeah. and we we were attuned to it because of the Indiana Cleveland game. Well, there was just one spot, which was part of the black detailing on the trophy actually was where like a few guys including Tyrese Halliburton who looked like he kind of tweaked his groin a little bit yeah that was another indication actually like Tyrese came back he didn't look amazing from that sprained ankle uh, but uh, especially for a home game seemed like they wanted to push him to come back and he he managed to come through in the end for them we'll talk about that game in a second and I thought the crowds were really good too I don't know if that was just due to you know the special court and and the nature of this and the fact that it was we were witnessing history here such as it is but i, I thought the crowds were all pretty amazing uh yeah any any other kind of general thoughts no i mean it was fun to have games that had at least a little added significance this early and we'll see where things move from here but no i i enjoyed the experience quite a bit and it's something to look forward to in a part of the season where even as much as you and I love the NBA and follow all 30 teams, it's nice to have something a little bit different. And I don't think that like more casual fans are probably going to, and I'm not great at predicting casual fans. I don't know that they're going to get into group stage, maybe at the very end, kind of like where it's like, oh, this is what's going to happen. But then the, once you get down to the round of eight, I think that then that'll be something that people get into because, you know, Almost everybody loves a single elimination tournament, especially when it's not to determine the champion of the whole league. Yeah, I think so. I, and I think this will the excitement will grow, obviously, as you get to the end of the group stage and you can actually win the group and qualify for the quarterfinals. And most of the quotes that I've had heard other than Jimmy Butler's have been pretty positive about it. Bontemps had a story about it today that I, I thought was pretty good. Yeah, Miles Turner Miles Turner called it. it like a playoff game, which was pretty fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, afterwards? Yeah. Yeah, well, he uh, he had a playoff level block, uh, and I, and I think it's just it's really cool for the, and this is part of why I like to play in too for teams that aren't necessarily going to be in the postseason regularly and playing real big games to to play in something like this. And I'm sure there will be at least a couple of teams that qualify for the quarterfinals and the elimination game that you wouldn't normally see in in that sort of a setting. So I think that's going to be pretty cool. Uh, I want to save this actually for the end of just what the most significant result sure. was today once we kind of go through it all. But just in terms of the games themselves, what was the one that most interested you tonight? Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the Bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm 
it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout Please remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfit of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you so why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style level up your game with indochino go to indochino.com use the code capspace using our capspace we talk about all the time here on the program you get 10 percent off any purchase of 399 dollars or more that's 10 percent off at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com and don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us I think we can start with the highest scoring game in NBA Cup history. And, and, and that would be Warriors Thunder, a game that you and I previewed first at our preview before we knew that Shea Gilgis Alexander had a knee sprain. And it ended up living up to our our billing. Um, I guess you could put it that way. And you and I weren't as focused on it in the first half because we were covering on playback the end of Cleveland, Indiana, which was a fun one that we'll talk about in a bit. But a couple of significant dynamics here that I think are are worth are, are worth something because remember these are regular season games and NBA Cup games. One of them is OKC Mark Dagnall. I think he's one hell of a coach. You know, getting good shots, generating high quality offense without Shea Gildas Alexander on the floor. I mean, this was a starting five of Kaysen Wallace, Josh Giddy, Jalen Williams, J Dub. Um, Lou Dort and Chet Holmgren. And I mean, a number of those guys showed out with big performances. Lou Dort was perfect from the field for a while. Chet Holmgren had 24, 8, and 5 and like had had some really, really wonderful moments. Yeah, he just continues to be extremely efficient offensively. He made both of his threes. And in fact, OKC was 15 of 29 from three. Shot 52% for three and lost, although Golden State was 18 of 40 in their own right. And Golden State continues to go 
10 deep. In fact, the person who played the fewest minutes for them was Kevon Looney, who didn't, as you like to say, didn't really have a place to be in this game because his mobility isn't as good as it used to be. The Thunder really spread you out quite a bit. They like to attack off the dribble and Looney's rim production hasn't been quite as good the last couple of years. And he got four fouls in 11 minutes. So uh, he, he, I think, ended up getting the Keith Bogans in both halves. They went to Sharich more and also just generally went small. We had our first significant stretch of Draymond Green at center other than the very end of the Sacramento game, which we'll actually probably talk about tomorrow. And But that is really interesting that you had five guys off the bench play 18 or more minutes for Golden State. I think Steve Kerr is really excited that they can play a close game like this. It, Oklahoma City really never got to the point where they were up by like so much that he felt like he had to rush Steph Curry back in the game. Steph Curry only played 31 minutes, even though it was close and he was playing extremely well. So I, I think just this has a level of sustainability for Golden State, I would say in some ways, particularly throughout the meat of the game. I do wonder about the sustainability of it towards the end of the game. I think that maybe even was more the case in the Sacramento game, as we'll talk about. But I think this is, even without Shea Gilders-Alexander in a good environment on the road, like any road win, particularly when you only have to play Steph Curry 31 minutes, you feel good about it. You do, and... Steve Kerr has more options for his coaching five than he has at other points. But part of the reason he has more options is they don't have an Andre Guadalla right now. And, and also that Andrew Wiggins has generally played below his standard. And so for this game, we saw, you know, Wiggins being the, what I would call a healthy scratch from the closing five. Like he played in the game. He had 27 minutes played 17 points. But in terms of who Kerr trusts in the key moments, they went to this, you know, t- tiny tunes lineup of, Steph Curry, Chris Paul, Clay Thompson, Gary Payton the second, and then Draymond at the five. And I was like, man, this is really small. And Gary Payton the second to me was the star of the end of the game. Steph Curry always is just because of the offense there. Sure. I thought this was the first time that Golden State's offense really looked unstoppable, that the Thunder just were not prepared to deal with some of their stuff playing off of Steph Curry down the end. They just got like layups on pretty much every possession down the end because of the stuff that Golden State was running. But Gary Payton the second, he had one possession where he sprinted back on defense and deflected a pass by Josh Giddy to the corner that would have been an open three. Then he gets another deflection on Josh Giddy. This is after J-Dub had fouled out, so they're running everything through Giddy. Giddy throws it past the corner. Peyton gets a, a hand on that. Then Giddy gets the ball. Peyton is switched onto him, and he Peyton forced the jump ball, and then he wins the jump ball. It was just an incredible overall possession by him, and he also locked up J-Dub on a play where J-Dub tried to take him. Peyton knocked it away. Then J-Dub dove on the floor for the ball through Clay's legs, ended up committing a, a loose ball foul. Then that was the go-ahead free throws for Golden State. And Peyton also, they left him on the floor even on an offensive possession because Giddy was guarding him and they wanted to involve Giddy in pick and roll. And Peyton is, quite frankly, probably their best pick and roll player too because he he's very quick. Their best role man, to be clear. The screen. Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> that, that is an important an important point yeah best role I, I mean i would say draymond is probably a better pick and roll player overall than him but but as far as just like a role man who could finish at the rim well and, and that was the funniest thing is it was best, yeah. like basically so he ended up in the dunker spot draymond draymond had the ball and he threw a lob to gary payton which he didn't quite finish for a dunk but he got got the two points and i was sitting there watching him finish it i'm like oh kavan Woody wouldn't have made that play and looney who has been so valuable in the these later stages of the warriors run he just doesn't have the, that kind of offensive capability. And so to have somebody out there 
And the other part of what makes Gary Payton II so fascinating and important for this Warriors team is the shift of Clay Thompson to guarding more wings, is that you don't want Steph Curry guarding point of attack. And you can have Wiggins do it at some point. I don't think that's where Wiggins is at his best. There will be times that Wiggins is in those lineups. But Gary Payton, he's, you know, he's a limited shooter. So him and Draymond, but it can be shaky, but he's an active cutter. He can be involved in kind of like the tertiary part of these actions. And so I think there's a place for him, especially against teams and OKC in their full state would not qualify for this, but who have like a single ball dominant player where he can put those clamps on, can generate some deflections and some steals and also be a, a an adept help defender. And so I, I think there will be times other than a last possession. Now, I'm not saying Kerr is going to do this, but where Gary Payton, the second is a better fit for their closing lineup than Chris Paul is. Yeah, well, today it was the you thought he was a better fit than Andrew Wiggins, uh, and that turned sure. out to be the case, particularly with, with OKC Small. Now, at some point, if you're OKC, I mean, number one, Shea Gilles Alexander is one of the best isolation players in the league, and they were missing him, and then uh, J-Dub balled out. I thought J-Dub, even though he was 8-12 from the field, he did have six turnovers, and I thought Golden State, when J-Dub really had to be the main guy at the end of the game, I thought that Golden State did expose some of the limitations in his handle. Uh, and even Clay Thompson, like he wasn't really able to get by. Like J-Dub really, despite being a second-year player, he used his kind of strength and power to get by guys, and, and that wasn't really going to work on yeah. Clay Thompson. And you know he likes to just go with like one hard crossover and go, and I, I think more guys should really go to the, be simple like that. But when he that initial attack doesn't work, he doesn't have as many additional options to go to. And, and yeah, he has he has a go to, but the counters are, are a big question. And I, the the word I would use for for J Dub was flustered. I thought he got when you know when those yeah. main things didn't work. And you can you can survive that. I mean, the Thunder were in this game, and and you brought up the six turnovers. They still posted a one thirty four offensive rating in this contest. Like they still were a very good offense overall without their best player. And I mean, Lou Dort going 6-6 six six from 3 and 9-12 from the field. That that helps things a little bit. But they also did a wonderful job overall. And so I, I think for the Thunder, this idea of them being a tough out, being a well-coached team, I mean, even with this loss, they're still 3-2 and two on the season. And their other loss, they absolutely could have won, is that is very useful for them. And, and something that really, to me, bodes well about their future success, not only in this year, but moving forward, is that you know, this was a game that you and I were very excited for and then less excited for, and they they gave it their all and absolutely, absolutely could have won it. For sure. And I mean, now they, they shot that crazy number from three and Golden State took 12 corner threes to the Thunder seven and the Thunder were 12 of 15 from floater in. So they definitely were hot. 13 to 22 on above the break threes. Golden State was 14 to 28 on above the break threes. But that was uh, it was definitely a hot shooting performance by them. And you know, Golden State, you expect that a little bit more. OKC is not a great shooting team at this point outside of uh, Isaiah Joe. At some point, in addition to Shea, you would maybe like to see Chet Holmgren be able to get involved in pick and roll. And then maybe that he could attack a switch or you can lob it up to him, get some fouls that way. Uh, but, you know, that's the Chet really has not been posting up much at all so far this year. I don't think he's really ready for that necessarily. Uh, and any other kind of strategic things that stuck out to you, individual performances? Uh, from an individual performance standpoint, Case and Wallace, I mean, he, the, the Thunder moved up for him. They took on 
Davis Bertans contract and to, to move up just two slots. And I mean, the Mavs ended up with Derek Lively. I think the Mavs are very happy with that transaction, but Wallace started in Shea's stead. He didn't play Shea's role, obviously, but I thought he did a good job. And I mean, for a rookie who at, at this point is, I think he's 19. He'll turn 20 relatively soon. Like I thought Wallace did a very good job. That guy's rock solid so far. And there's a question about his ability to shoot. That's looked pretty good at this point. And he doesn't really try to do too much, but he, he's able to take good shots, get straight to the rim. And he also defends it. Just the fact that he's in the rotation just automatically, immediately like this on a team that's pretty deep. They had a lot of good players last year and they, they're missing some guys, but, and then he's starting playing 36 minutes and, you know, he's not that experienced, but physically he certainly is a very solid defensive guard. So I don't know that he's going to be like some unbelievable off the dribble creator, but as someone who can play next to Shea Gilgis Alexander or Josh Giddy, I think he looks like a really good pick in the Thunder. They put themselves out there to take on $22 million of Davis Bertans contract to move up two slots from 12 to 10 and get him. I think that's looking pretty good so far. Quite frankly, I, I was skeptical of it. I didn't think of Wallace as like a high upside prospect, but if he just hits as a starter, it's probably a worthwhile move in the end. It is a worthwhile move if he can hit that. And, and also the like complementary skill sets. And you brought up Giddy. To me, the combination that is most exciting for OKC on the perimeter is Shea, J Dub, and Wallace. So you have yeah. Wallace as the point of attack defender. And then you, you don't have really like a bad defender of the bunch and you have Chet Holmgren and then you can fill that fifth spot a lot of different ways. You could do it with Lou Dort. Theoretically, you could have a taller human being in that spot if you wanted. It could be a lot of different things depending on what you need in that moment. Incidentally, it could be kind of like the Warriors fifth player at this point where you can have different niches. It could, of course, obviously be Josh Giddy in certain configurations too. Uh, the other thread that I wanted to talk about a little bit from this game and you, you and I don't love talking about officiating, but there were three big reviews during the clutch minutes of this game. And I was extremely impressed overall with the officiating crew because they were not easy calls. So the first one of those was a, it was an action where they originally called a foul on Lou Dort getting through a Draymond Green screen, um, trying to defend Stephen Curry. And at, at, it looked, you know, there, there was enough contact from Dort on Green that, that the thought could be, well, you know, they did that, but Draymond yeah, Green's yeah, the, that that the foul was on Dort initially. That the foul was on Dort. Usually it was, don't want to usually don't want to challenge those because there's always some sort of hand fighting. Both players are doing something illegal, so they'll just find something to sustain the original call. Right, and the officials, but Draymond's contact was both first and worse. Like what he did to Dort, you know, out, arms outside, more of a grab and hold, all that, and the referees reversed the call, which was to me the correct decision. The second one of those was a review related to a hostile act. Draymond Green was going up for a finish and had his elbows, I would say, more up than out, which was relevant to the call. Chet Holmgren went in for a block. You know, Chet Holmgren didn't really do anything wrong there. They they didn't call a foul on Holmgren, but Draymond Green's elbow hit Chet Holmgren in the face. And upon review, they ruled that it was not a hostile act, but it also there was no foul called on Chet Holmgren. So it was just Warriors out which I think was the, was the correct call. And considering Holmgren was on the ground for three minutes, I felt badly for him. We worried that he was concussed. I don't know if they checked him or whatever there. But again, hard call, hometown crowd, going crazy, player on the ground. But Draymond Green did not do anything unnatural. And because Holmgren was the second mover, 
and Draymond Green stayed still, it's really unfair to punish the offensive player in that circumstance because the offensive player did absolutely nothing wrong. Yeah, I mean, it was just going up strong. He had two hands on the ball, and he caught him with an elbow, but it wasn't like a swing of the elbow. It's pretty hard to go up for a shot with both hands on the ball and commit a flagrant foul. And then also they did a good job on the Dream on Green flop, which I I just, I couldn't believe that he did that. Like, Chet tried to take him one-on-one. It looked like that was the play call, actually. And Draymond is fast enough that he's able to get pretty well in front of him, but he wasn't in perfectly legal guarding position, and Chet was kind of going at a diagonal. So Draymond thought there was, like, a push-off. He got elbowed. He flopped down. And, but like, you're Draymond Green. This guy's a rookie. Just like, he's not going to overpower you. He was, he might not have been in position to fall down, but like, there wasn't about to be a foul call. Like, Draymond Green had him cut off, but he flops down and gives up two free throws to give up the lead for Golden State. So I I really dislike that. And then, of course, uh, the other review was the one at the very end. Yeah, at the very end of the game. And one that, you know, you and I have watched a whole lot of basketball, but one that surprised us. Um, but I, from what I understand, I haven't gone all the way through the rule book since it happened. Seems to have been at least correctly called based on what I call basketball justice. Well, well the- here, I've, I've got it for you. Actually. Okay, go ahead. Uh, so John, so it's bas- basically, it's, but we'll start that it was a Stephen Curry shot that went, that was, so it was tie game. Curry goes late, puts the ball off glass. And, and it goes in with 0.2 of a second left. They review it for basket interference by Draymond Green. And then. Yeah. So. It didn't look like Green had touched it at all. And then replay showed that Green had touched the rim as the ball was going through. And similarly, Josh Giddy had also touched the net. And so the OKC announcers, and I I guess I got kind of wrapped up in it. I forgot that this is the rule. So I apologize to those of you who are watching on playback with us. But it is only a goaltend if you touch the rim, not the ball. It is clearly did not touch the ball. If you touch the rim and essentially that your touch of the rim causes the ball to do something different than it would have done. And of course, uh, as the rule book normally does, there's an objective standard. Here's what it says. It's only if you touch the rim when the ball is sitting or rolling on the ring and using the basket ring as its lower base. (laughs) But but that makes sense, right? Basically, like that means yeah. Because if it's if it's on if it's the upper base, then it was going in or out. Yeah, and and it's even the same with the the backboard too. If you hit the backboard at the same time as the ball hits the backboard, you make it bounce differently. That could be a goaltend also. Sure, I guess basket interference technically. So uh, I mean, I think the bigger thing that was lost is the shot by Curry itself. I mean, it was an incredible play. Bob Fitzgerald certainly thought so as we we saw him on the uh, on the replay. The Warriors. Uh, a homerific announcer just like raising up both hands in triumph as the ball goes through. But uh, Steph, I mean, they ran after Lou Dort hit only one of two free throws. Uh, after the Thunder ran a really nice play, Andrew Wiggins and Jonathan Kaminga, they put them out there for defense. Those two guys, eh, maybe not the best communicators defensively. They crash into each other. They end up getting a, a backdoor for Lou Dort. They clobber Lou Dort with the help. He only makes one out of two. Even though Lou Dort, surprisingly, is a, a pretty good free throw shooter for his career. 79%. Like 79%. Yeah, so he only makes one of two. Ties the game. So Golden State calls timeout. They bring it up with Steph. They, they put in all their offensive guys, spread the floor. 
and stuff is just being guarded by Lou Dort. They don't do any kind of an action to like bring a weaker defender into it, cause any confusion. Straight ISO for Lou Dort against, or, or sorry, for Seth Curry against Lou Dort. We both noted on the broadcast that because OKC was out of timeouts, they actually probably had more leeway to shoot earlier and potentially get an offensive rebound, or maybe they could have involved two guys, put two on the ball, and then stuff could have gotten off the ball and they could have gotten something at the basket but instead they ran the time down Steph usually likes a step back left in that situation instead he faked that way hard cross right got separation goes to the basket and then it wasn't a floater it was like a George Gervin style like finger roll he took off outside the lane flips it up just over Chet off the glass reminded me a little bit of although that was a floater rather than a finger roll of the shot that he hit at the end of game six in 2016 to ice that game uh, over Serge Ibaka but this one was over Holmgren obviously and just beautiful shot against you know one of I mean who who else there's probably maybe well I don't know actually that's not true I think I would rather have a guy with a little more length on Steph Curry rather than sort of like the bowling ball type of Lou Dort but still Lou Dort one of your top options to guard Steph Curry one on one in that situation and Steph cooked him for the win. Well, and and one other piece of context, we'll talk about Warriors Kings in the 15 and 60, but when the Kings doubled Stephen Curry in a late game situation there, he never touched the ball again. Now, the Warriors did end up getting a basket in that circumstance and won the game, but that may have informed it and here having the tie, having the shot clock off, that may have just been like, well, let's put the ball in the hands of our I, best player. I think that's exactly it because they brought the the ball up full court uh, and then they just doubled stuff at half court, which is pretty good execution by the Kings. But yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that game likely tomorrow. Anything else on this one? Well, we mentioned that OKC shot 15 to 29 from three, which is phenomenal as a percentage. And, you know, 15 made threes is nothing to shake at. The Warriors actually made three more threes. They were 18 of 40. Like that, that denominator yeah. being 40 is absolutely massive for them. And then both teams attempted 30 free throws. So it wasn't like OKC got it back there. And then the Warriors, they were, they actually had a lower effective field goal percentage than the Thunder because the Thunder were in the 100th percentile there. But the Warriors rebounded 39% of their own misses. Uh, four individually credited for Wiggins, three for Curry, two for Green, and various for other guys. Yeah, and Wiggins is starting to round into shape a little bit more offensively. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What was your second favorite game of the evening? Hmm. Uh, I th- I think where I'd go from there was the the first game. Um, it was I I always enjoy it when you have a, a game that's kind of solo in its time slot and is good, which is what happened at times with Cavs Pacers. And I was initially very pumped, not only because it was the first NBA Cup game, but because Cleveland had their starting five, and so this the intended starting five: Garland, Mitchell, Struess, Mobley, and Allen, and that 
And then in the earlys going, I mean, Indiana looked great. Like they were, they were drilling threes. Bruce Brown had this big stretch in the beginning of the game as well. And the Pacers went up 36, 26, though not all of that, of course, was starters versus starters. And then Indy, like where they really blew the game open was a big run at the end of the second quarter, which eventually Cleveland came back from. In that vein, I thought one of the most interesting things about this game from the Pacers standpoint was the player usage. Sure. And it was a lineup of their starters plus Buddy Heald rather than Ben Matherin. And this was a a big theme of my discussions uh, with Caitlin Cooper before the season. And that looked really good. Heald, 14 points plus 16, uh, did it on only nine shooting possessions. And so he hit a big one. They just had more spacing and the Cavs really couldn't defend them. In part, that was because Jared Allen was in foul trouble. He got three fouls in the first probably like 15 minutes of the game and didn't come back in and there was a point at which they're playing like Dean Wade and Tristan Thompson together uh, in what would have been Jared Allen's minutes. Allen, of course, was making his season debut coming off that ankle bone bruise. And he looked fine, actually. I thought he did, too. Talk about the end of the game. Yeah, but so I, I thought that lineup was pretty interesting. Well, and, and wasn't Neesmith yeah. out there for some of that, too? Uh, trying to remember. I thought it was I thought it was Toppin then, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was Neesmith. I know it was Neesmith at the end of the game. Yeah, let me let me take a quick look. No, it was it was Toppin. You were right. Uh, the other thing that stood out to me in that first half in particular was Toppin really helped the Pacers' defensive rebounding. And mm. I would say overall, the Cavs only getting five offensive rebounds for the game. And they didn't play Mobley and Allen together that much. But the Pacers traditionally are not a great defensive rebounding team. Miles Turner, that's kind of the one thing that he struggled at. Uh, Turner also had an incredible first half with 22 points hit I think all four of his three pointers in the first and was also really bedeviling the Cavs as a roll man his ability to roll and pop was pretty good oh I I, go up yeah oh sorry you go ahead I didn't mean to interrupt uh no I mean I was going to change the subject oh okay then I then third quarter yeah then I'll go to a thread that was both in the first half but then persisted throughout the game you brought it up well in playback but I I noticed it before that and you know because this was the first game on so I was watching is which is the way that Max Struess and George Niang make the Cleveland offense so much more dangerous because of the spacing that it provides. And so like there were plays where Garland or Mitchell and Donovan Mitchell had a huge night, 38 points, 13 to 21 from the field, eight to 10 from the line, because that fifth player, if you want to call it that, isn't Isaac Okoro, that it's Max Drews, it's somebody that you have to actually defend. It changes where the help is coming from. And if you, if you help aggressively onto Garland or Mitchell or Mobley or whoever it is, then there's somebody dangerous moving around if it's Struce who can hit that shot and who's willing to take it at bare minimum. Yeah, and I thought that both Struce and Niang, and those are their two prize free agent signings. They didn't have a ton of resources available. They brought both of them in. Just having more smart players who are skilled and can shoot, even though both of them are relatively slow for their positions, Niang excruciatingly slow at times, but bringing those guys in and upping the skill level, I thought that really helped them, particularly in the third quarter where you had Max Struess like slipping out of screens, going right down the lane for layups. Like they got so many little slips to the rim in the third. Overall, the Cavs were just absolutely killed them at the rim. What, What did they end up shooting at the rim? 25 of 34. Yeah, that's a, a 
big number to be sure. They actually weren't able to get as much at the rim late. Uh, at one point, I think like mid fourth, it was 24 or 31. And, but that was just like the Cleveland Cavaliers didn't get system buckets last year. Now, how many of those system buckets are coming with Jared Allen and Evan Mobley on the floor? It gets a little harder, right? There are times when they would blitz Donovan Mitchell, who was ridiculous again in this game. He missed one game with hamstring soreness, but he was certainly unbelievable tonight. And, you know, they, Jared Allen slips out of it. He's coming downhill. Miles Turner is there. Evan Mobley is in the corner, and Evan Mobley misses the, the corner three. So it, there's still that component. You know, they still have to kind of figure things out with those two guys together offensively, and we'll see whether Struess helps. Like the Struess and Mobley have been working together to try to add more of a movement shooting component, so they just have more actions they can go to. Struess was pretty off in this game uh, with uh, one of six from the field. And the other thing about Niang and Struess too is they're just like heady help defenders that at least step in, take a charge, execute pretty well. Just different types of players than like some of the on-ball guys they've been working with like Okoro or Karis LeVert who had a very Karis LeVert line of 5 of 12 for 13 points and 04 from 3 even though I thought his individual defense was very solid again uh what else we got in this one there was a play that cracked me up in the first quarter where Bendik Matherin extremely one of the most aggressive drivers in the league he drives in and he passed out of it. I'm like, and he didn't pass out of it like to an, to an open guy, like for a dunk or a three or something like that. He passed out of it. And I realized why is because he basically was kind of driving diagonally and he went into like a, basically like a, a combo platter of Jared Allen, Nevin Mobley. And I'm like, oh, that's what it takes for him to give up on a drive is those two dudes standing there. And there were points where you saw the Pacers who overall had a, had a very efficient night. There were a lot of really efficient nights in tonight's NBA cup action, but they, that, when they when the Cavs had the rim protection out there, sure there are limitations offensively, but they can make things harder. And I thought that you know that's why the transition game was so important. And there were some times where Opie Toppin got some finishes there, and everything else. But the the theory of Cleveland defensively, as long as the other team isn't shooting fifteen of thirty one on threes, which the Pacers did in this one, and also Allen only playing twenty one minutes, being in his first game back. Not that those two things are rigidly related. Um, I, so I thought that even though Cleveland got this loss and it is going to make it harder for them to advance out of the group stage, I thought that there were times where you're like, oh yeah, this is the Cavs team that I expected to see, even though this loss puts them to two and four, albeit with some real context. Yeah. And some of that context was Indiana shooting 15 of 31 from three and Cleveland going eight of 28, Donovan Mitchell, four of seven, rest of team four of 21 and Darius Garland. He was out there. Another guy played 32 minutes. That was probably his limit. The pass by Evan Mobley towards his ankles that made him sprint after it at the end of the game. The Cavs had two brutal turnovers in the last two minutes. That was one of them as Evan Mobley tried to bust out and then he just overthrew a bounce pass to Garland. I remembered one other quick thing and these two teams are are division rivals. They're very familiar with each other. Cleveland did a better job than most opponents making Tyrese Halliburton go left. Which is, mm-hmm. which is worse for him. But there was a play. And, and I mean, Evan Mobley is a wonderful defensive player where Mobley, you know, in an ISO against Halliburton lets him go right. And then that kind of lets things get going. And it's just, just the idea of, you know, when you put a big out in an island as good as Mobley is, it's, you know, they might not have that full scouting report in their head for every single guy. And I mean, also, I, I think Mobley still contested on the play well, but it's the type of thing that can you're talking about that three that Halliburton hit at the end. No, it was before that. It was, it was like, okay. it was like six, seven minutes left. 
I just it just stuck in my mind. Yeah. Well, and you I'm glad you brought that up because both teams were doing a ton of switching in this game. Pacers a little bit less because they wanted to keep Miles Turner closer to the rim, but they certainly were switching one through four. That's part of why Neesmith closed it out rather than Toppin. And Cleveland was switching too. And they had Jared Allen guarding Tyrese Halliburton and Allen blocks Halliburton on one play towards the end as he's going in for a left-handed layup. They forced him left, but then Halliburton gets him with that Ephus step back going to his right and Allen kind of let him out there. You know, I thought Allen looked pretty decent physically though, other than the fouling. But I, and I thought this game was in marked contrast to what took place in the Brooklyn Chicago game where both teams were doing a ton of switching in that game too, but neither of the offenses were doing anything remotely creative to like get quick slips to the rim or cause confusion or any of that. Whereas the Cavs and the Pacers, I thought were both doing stuff like that. And you had, you know, stuff like I was talking about with Niang or Struz quickly slipping down the lane, even though those guys are, are shooters or the, the Pacers disguising some Spain pick and roll stuff, causing some confusion there. Uh, I mean, the Cavs, I think, rightfully really wanted to keep Tyrese Halliburton out of pick and roll, out of the lane, and make him be a, a, a scorer one-on-one. And he was able to come through late. He finished with 18 points and 13 assists. But I, like I said, I didn't think he had his usual level of explosion. And, and then just briefly briefly to throw a pin in something that was in our weekend wrap-up previously, three prominent Pacers who were not in the rotation for this game. Yeah. TJ McConnell, Jairus Walker, Isaiah Jackson didn't play a single minute. And what they had been doing was going 10 deep and they excised McConnell this time. I was wondering if he was injured. He wasn't. So they brought in Nemhart as the backup point guard, but he also played a, a little bit of shooting guard as well, but not that much. And then Heald came in for Matherin. Heald had actually been coming in for Bruce Brown instead as the backup three. He played more backup too. So they basically were playing Nemhard, but really more healed more rather than McConnell and having Nemhard be the backup point guard rather than the backup shooting guard. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, you know, Nemhard wasn't exactly bombing away from three, but he's at least a threat out there. And I think he's got a little more size defensively to guard uh, a Donovan Mitchell. I thought Mitchell was just going completely crazy early. And then they bring in Nemhart and, you know, I think it was Ben Matherin who had the initial matchup on Mitchell. And, uh, yeah, that wasn't going to go too. No, I think it was actually Bruce Brown. It was Bruce Brown, I believe. But they, they got, uh, Matherin switched on to a number of times or got him switched on to Garland. That didn't look too good. So, and then they brought in Nemhart. I thought that shut off the water a little bit. And then it, Jalen Smith continues to be the backup center over Isaiah Jackson over Daniel Tice. And I thought they actually probably featured him a little bit too much, although he did have 13 points on six of eight. He was, they were like posting him up a bunch of times against smaller players. One time he got the ball at the top of the key and tried to like take Evan Mobley one on one, and that didn't go too well. He it did. immediately got stripped by the, the help defense. But Smith was able to do it. And another time he posted up, he just like turned in base and shot like 16 footer against a smaller player. It's like, no, that's not what you're out here to do. But uh, I, I just thought it was, that was interesting. So I'm going to keep an eye on that. Like they actually seem to have some respect for his skill level to where they actually would throw him the ball, which I, you know, that's not something I've really seen much of from uh, Jalen Smith so anything, far. Anything else here? Are we ready to move on? Yeah, let's, let's uh, quickly do Chicago and Brooklyn. No Nick Clocks in this game. Chicago fully healthy once again and they fall to two and four this is a game that regardless of the tournament ramifications though they are pretty big for chicago here too probably need to win uh if you're planning on being a decent team with no you know this is a team that's like right in the mix with them both teams shot it pretty well from three so you can't brooklyn got up a lot more shots but you can't really blame 
shooting lock uh, for this loss for Chicago. And we talked about this, uh, that kind of the fulcrum would probably be Nikola Vucevic and maybe to a lesser extent, Ben Simmons. And Vucevic did a few nice things, but he, you know, he wasn't able to like really get to the foul line, did have six offensive rebounds. And then he, he actually was switching early and then they started putting him more into drop coverage. He was guarding Dorian Finney-Smith and Finney-Smith was getting out to pick and pops uh, and it hit a bunch of big threes. He was five and nine, uh, including one of the biggest shots uh, of the game in the fourth. It was another, um, at least different to me, starting lineup for Brooklyn, Dinwiddie, Thomas, Finney-Smith, Simmons, and Mikael Bridges. So not only no traditional center, but I mean, it gets, it gets even more complicated, kind of how you want to find the other positions. And Finney-Smith was their leading scorer. He wasn't, you know, running the offense through him. It was just that it was finding him at opportune moments. And it was good for the Nets that they had some of their depth depth players in place. Not that they had the greatest performances. Dennis Smith, three of nine from the field. Lonnie Walker, five ten. He had a, a missed shot in his fourth quarter, or was that second quarter? It was a point where we were watching. But something that I'm keeping a close eye on when it comes to the Bulls is, even though they played roughly the same amount of minutes, Torrey Craig started, Patrick Williams came off the bench. Yeah, and Williams didn't play much during the period that I was watching, but he was plus 10, had 10 points, hit two of his three threes. Well, and, and notably, the only Bulls bench player who was a positive and plus minus, which shows you that they're using him differently than like a straight sub. Yeah, I thought Javon Carter was going to play more for these guys. It really has been Kobe White more. He had 35 minutes, 7 of 17 from the field. And I, I thought he was decent defensively, but Cam Thomas was able to attack him a couple times just because he has a little bit shorter arms. And Thomas did struggle in this one. He had to, uh, was throwing a number of flaming bags by his teammates. Did have four assists, though? Mm-hmm. I wonder what Cam Thomas' career high in assists is. But let me see what else I had on this one. You know, I mostly focused in on this, uh, as you did on playback in the fourth quarter. And Cam Thomas actually had a couple of decent stops. Of course, they were gapping. Uh, but, you know, Mikhail Bridges is, and this is kind of what makes Mikhail Bridges so good, right? Like, let's say you put Dylan Brooks on Zach Levine. Dylan Brooks would probably do a pretty darn good job on Zach Levine and probably a better one in terms of just the individual defense on Zach Levine than Mikhail Bridges would. But Mikhail Bridges, DeMar DeRozan is trying to attack and Mikhail Bridges is basically almost standing at the nail and he's using his length to be on the axis. He's just a great nail defender in addition to being a good one-on-one guy. And so DeMar probably maybe could have passed it to Levine, but it wasn't, it didn't look like it was like wide open, even though Bridges is close enough to affect DeRozan's driving lanes. And so some of the help defense from these wings, that was kind of my vision for the Nets where, okay, you've got Cam Thomas out there to score, but DeRozan didn't, couldn't just go to work against Cam Thomas because you had these other long athletes who were in the area and Cam Thomas got a couple of stops and certainly shots that DeRozan has hit many times in his career before. Uh, well, and on that, on, on sort yeah. of that concept, Brooklyn, especially in this iteration with no Nick Claxton, it puts a lot more pressure on your point of attack defenders because you don't have as much help. And so I wondered about, and, and their point of attack defenders, I think, generally did a good job. But so, so I wanted to see where Chicago shots are coming from. And Chicago was 18 to 26 in the restricted area. That is both good, but not ridiculous. Brooklyn took and made more shots in the restricted area than Chicago. And that is a problem when you're facing this version of the Nets. Like you need to get all the way there. And, and they also to took way more threes too. They also got up 45 threes. They well. did. And, I, and Brooklyn didn't get to the line at all. It's not like Chicago was livid there. It was 10 of 14 versus 3 of 5. And two of those five came at the very end when Chicago was trying to extend the game. So, 
Yeah, I, I would say to me this was a disappointing loss for the Bulls and, and a good one for the Nets. The Nets moved to three and two on the season. And, you know, we, we, I don't know how much I believe in either of these teams to come out of East Group C, considering the Boston Celtics are looming large, did not play on NBA Cup night one. But, you know, and a, a nice win for, for Brooklyn to get. I think where I want to go from here well, is. Yeah, let me see if oh, I had anything oh, else. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, the, the very end of the game. The Bulls just uh, were out executed. I thought they had one nice play where Kobe White got a drive when Vucevic was posting up uh, against one of the smaller Nets players, and the Nets were running. And so Kobe White did a good job of driving the front. That's with more teams switching onto post players with smaller guys and trying to front, or even just that the guy's smaller and he's not really able to help whether he's fronting or not in the post. That driving right past a post player for a layup is a, a more common tactic. So that's been pretty good. Uh, but that was really the only time I thought they executed well late, particularly defensively. You had this drop coverage with Dorian Finney-Smith as the pop guy and Vooch trying to get out uh, to him because they didn't want to switch it with Vooch, obviously, and you know, taking Vooch off the floor is a, a non-starter, uh, of course. And I, I thought that generally Brooklyn was able to protect Cam Thomas pretty well. As I said, the Bulls didn't do a great job getting a matchup. Although there are times, particularly when they subbed out Thomas, that there wasn't necessarily the obvious matchup to go after. Uh, there's one play that really stuck out to me is the Nets man should go at Zach Levine with Mikhail Bridges. Zach Levine weirdly kind of tries to pressure him up into the corner, and then Bridges just blows by him along the baseline and... Was, this is also interesting, right? You're, you might think like, all right, well, why don't you just put Nikola Vucevic on Ben Simmons, right? Like that's your center. Ben Simmons can't shoot at all. Well, they had to hide DeMar DeRozan on Ben Simmons instead. So DeMar DeRozan is way late coming over. He's not probably going to affect Mikhail Bridges much. Anyway, Mikhail Bridges gets a wide open dunk off the dribble in the half court when he's had the ball for like 15 consecutive seconds and the Bulls just never rotated over. That was pretty bad. Uh they had, you know, an ISO for Zach Levine against Mikhail Bridges. Like, the, again, not really putting your guys in great position to succeed. Royce O'Neal had a beautiful verticality play on Zach Levine. And Zach Levine probably needs to finish over, like, the 6'4 Royce O'Neal. But Royce O'Neal got his chest on him, and Royce O'Neal is pretty strong. And so, yeah, I, I thought the Nets just played a little bit better than uh, the Bulls did in terms of their execution. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I, I want to move from here to the first overtime game in NBA Cup history. The Memphis Grizzlies came into the night the only winless team in the NBA, and unfortunately for the Grizzlies, they walk out of the night still the only winless team in the NBA. And I only really caught the end of this game. Um, was uh, Yeah, as did I. Yeah, and so a couple of things really stood out to me. So I want to start with one from Memphis's perspective, which is I know Desmond Bain had a very nice game overall, 33 points, 
uh, though it was, in fairness, on 28 shooting possessions, but he also had seven assists, and Jaron Jackson had an efficient scoring night. But what I noticed was Memphis had so much trouble generating an advantage. And you think about how unbelievable John Morant is at that specific thing, or even just like what a Steven Adams screen can do to generate an advantage. He like puts a guy in the ground and then the, whether it's jaw or it's, you know, last year, Ty Jones or something else couldn't make that work. And so Memphis was having to, was having to grind for everything. And I thought they actually did a relatively good job grinding, but if that's what you have to do the whole time, it's going to be a big problem. So that was one part of it. But for me, the bigger story in crunch time of this game, which was the end of regulation and then the overtime was our friend Shaden Sharp. Yeah, I thought that for a second consecutive game, Sharp, he wasn't amazing overall, 7-17, and also didn't have many assists. I think he had only like two or three assists. Uh, two assists. In, two assists, three end. turnovers. But I thought that he was really good. Like just, and like he's going to be inconsistent, right? Like he had a, he's had two terrible first halves in a row. And this time it really was about him attacking the basket a lot. And I thought he was part of our scouting. My one concern about him actually was that he didn't have like that much explosion off the dribble as far as a first step. He has a good first step now. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether it's, you know, he's worked on his body or just the biomechanics or, or just he's has a better handle now, but like he can just hesitation dribble and blow by guys. I mean, uh, this is, th- well. it's two straight games, Grizzlies and the Pistons that I've watched portions of it and neither team could stay in front of him. And yeah. it is not a circumstance where Shaden Sharp is, you know, like we, we talked about this with like the Celtics. So, oh, you can hunt the mismatch or anything like that. This was a, a Portland Trailblazers team that does not have Scoot Henderson. He didn't play in this game due to that ankle sprain. So, I mean, they don't have like an abysmal starting five, but it is not a circumstance where Shaden Sharp is just like facing a scrub and and dusting them. No, it's not that at all. Like they're and and Memphis. I mean, he's really the at, at the end. I thought he was the guy who was getting things going for Portland, and they, you know, you put resources behind it. You put good defenders on him, and Sharp was still getting to his spots. He also had a massive, really impressive help block that's ensured that the game went to overtime. He, I actually thought Sharp... Well, no, it was, it was actually his own man in the end. It was his uh, own man, but he reacted late. Yeah. And yeah. still well, just... help, that's why. I oh, remember. thanks. Um, He reacted late, but just still got there and, and made the block. Yeah, I mean, that is like Marcus Smart drives across the lane. Sharp kind of helps out there, loses sight of his man who goes to the corner. Looks like it's going to be a wide open three for... Canard. Canard doesn't have the highest release, but Sharp just, you know, takes two steps and like, you know, Wembenyama style play. Like six five guards don't make plays like that. Like it's no. just, it was ridiculous. Like how high he got was insane. And yeah, I'll save maybe more on Sharp because I want to talk specifically about that Detroit game as well and like some of the schematic problems that he causes for defenses. But I thought, you know, he really kept it pretty simple. Like the Blazers didn't really score all that much. I mentioned he only had two assists, but he was making the right play. You know, he's, he late, he sets up a, a corner three for Jeremy Grant, just pushing the ball up, getting into the paint and kicking it out. Like it wasn't amazing passes, but these are simple passes. Like he was making the right read. You know, one of the concerns right at the start last year was like, oh my God, this guy never passes. Like that's not, not true anymore. Like he's, I thought he was generally making the right simple play. Hey, nothing that's going to wow you, but given 
his background and some of the scoring ability he's showing like he was showing some ability to draw the defense and, and make the right play and the play the players were getting pretty good shots just weren't necessarily making them and then he he gets the tying free throws by just blowing by his man and getting the basket he had a play where he got penetration jaron jackson jr is waiting there and he just went over jaron jackson jr like he wasn't even there which is, you don't see anybody no. do that he just took off like it is this guy is an insane athlete. He's just, I mean, I've said this before, but it like the level of athlete that he is at the shooting guard position is pretty awesome. Then in the overtime, they tried to go under on him and pick and roll. He bangs a three. I thought he was actually pointedly eschewing those three pointers off the dribble, but this one, they, it was so wide open that he just took it and like really making a point of just getting into the bat into the lane and trying to make more plays so it's it was really these last uh, there's flashes uh you know he didn't have any huge defensive breakdowns either like he's made a few plays defensively so really exciting stuff i've really been enjoying watching him we'll talk more about him soon enough um with scoot, with scoot yeah. henderson unavailable a lot on malcolm brogdon's shoulders too he played 44 minutes 24 points 10 assists four turnovers and got to the line 12 times, made 10 of those 12. That was an important part of the offensive foundation for the Portland Trailblazers. Yeah. Boy, boy, does he like to dominate the ball, though, man. I mean, I, I thought like he he's just not really a great decision maker. Like at one point, Sharp has it going. They come down and transition. Sharp is being guarded by Luke Kennard, who they were trying to like get Luke Kennard onto Sharp. That was like the point of a bunch of sets. Luke Kennard picks him up and Brogdon looks him off and tries to get Jeremy Grant in the post against Desmond Bain instead. Um, yeah. Anything else you had on this? I had a couple other notes from the, the overtime. I mean, it's, it's disheartening when for the Grizzlies, when two of your best shooters, Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson have relatively solid shooting nights. You know, those guys were a combined eight for 17. And of course you will, Jaron, Jaron's five for eight. Like you, you will live, you'll live with that. But the team overall was 10 of 35 in part because Marcus Smart missed all five of his. David Roddy, who started, missed all four three-pointers of his. And Kennard, you know, I mean, one of four isn't that different. Like, you know, a rim out versus two of four, but just nobody was hit really hitting those shots other than Jackson and Bain. So 10 of 35 overall for them. And when you consider that plus the free throw margin, 36 attempts for Portland, 13 for the Memphis Grizzlies. It was a lot to theoretically overcome. Yeah. Brevin Knight, the Grizzlies announcer is just completely out of control with his complaining, particularly when, uh, I mean, I guess the initial calls wrong. Taylor Jenkins actually got the Grizzlies five points in the fourth quarter through really good challenges. In fact, one of them, Desmond Bain gets called for an offensive foul. Jenkins challenges because Bain scored and it would have been Bain's fifth. And then it turned out not only did they count the bucket, they ruled it just a no call. And then they tagged Jeremy Grant with a flopping technical. So that added another point, uh, which is pretty amazing. And then Smart got called for a blocking foul, which got overturned into a charge as well on Sharp. So Taylor Jenkins doing a good job with his challenges, which he usually early on, he was not too good with the the challenges. Um, But that wasn't enough. The Blazers trailed by 10 late and then go on a 12-2 run to tie it, culminating in those two sharp free throws. Um, Then the... Grizz run a beautiful set 
post up Marcus Smart is going for the win. And then they do this is becoming more and more common of an action now where basically one guy will set a back screen for another guy and it'll usually be two smalls. So then most teams want to switch that, right? So what happens though, if you switch a back screen? Well, the guy just ran into the back screen, right? So the guy who set the back screen actually has inside position on the guy who just switched onto him. So then you have, you set a back screen. And then the guy who just set the back screen also cuts back door. And Tumani Kamara had an amazing foul. They had a foul to give. This is how you use a fucking foul to give. Yeah. Right. This is as opposed to just all the, oh, he's just dribbling up top. Like, yeah. Oh, we're going to make him inbound it now. Ooh. Like, no. Like this, when you're beat, that's when you do it. They had a foul to give Tumani Kamara, who, by the way, is like closing games for the Blazers right now. What was he? The 52nd overall pick? And. I think most people thought he was a throw and the Suns are lamenting apparently that they lost him and uh, he's been impressive so far. He's got good size. You know, he's closing over Matisse Thibel right now. And the Blazers actually have pretty decent size up front with uh, he and Grant and Aiton. So yeah, Kamara grabbed him and took away what would have been like an easy back game winning backdoor layup for the Grizz. It was pretty mm. smart. It, it obviously won't continue, but currently Tumani Kamara's current team has a better record than his previous team. Wow. Yeah, well, we, we, we'll talk about that tomorrow. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, also for the Grizz, did you mention that Xavier Tillman did not start? I did not. Um, I mentioned that David Roddy started, but I didn't mention that Tillman was the guy who came off the bench. He played 24 minutes. Roddy played 32. Yeah. Now, Roddy had 16 points. He got some nice leak outs. Of course, couldn't hit a three, but you know, I didn't think oh, he was. Oh, by the, the way, Desmond Bain, four steals, three blocks. Yeah. Pretty good. Even even, But his arms are pretty short, though. I mean, I get it, though, because... You know, how many guys have actually had a negative wingspan in NBA history and like actually been there's like JJ Redick who couldn't hold up on defense and Bain, but Bain Bain had shown he could defend at the college level. He, Tyler Hero is another one of those guys who's a really small wingspan. Uh we heard all about how Tyler's like, Oh, it's not gonna affect me. I, I I defend really hard. Like, ah now you're actually a defensive liability. New New York and Milwaukee? Yeah, I, so this was a game because of our the playback stuff that I watched after the fact. And wh- what struck me about it, because I watched the very beginning before we started our broadcast, was a thread that ended up continuing throughout it, which was, you know, the, the Bucks at times can be a challenging matchup for the Knicks because they have such good rim protection You know, when they have Giannis and or Brooke Lopez on the floor. And so, yeah, and I mean, if New York's hitting their shots, which they did not hit their threes in this game, and get there. But what kept on happening was the Bucks would go up like eight to eight, eight to ten, something in that range usually. Like there was a point where Bochamp hits two threes in a row, and there were a few of these in the first, second, third, and fourth quarters. And then usually it was Jalen Brunson hits a big shot, often often with a good contest involved, and the Knicks just keep on fighting. The Knicks keep on staying in it, and they ended up falling. But I was impressed with their moxie. Yeah, particularly on a night when the Bucks uh, shot twenty of thirty nine from three to only lose by five and have a lead in the last minute of the game was impressive. And the big story in this one was Brooke Lopez, although he somehow only shot four of fifteen. He didn't make a two point field. He was 0 of five from two, four of ten from three. He actually, yeah, actually ended up getting credit with eight block shots in this one. And Adrian Griffin said after the game, his quote was, Sometimes as coaches were too smart for our own selves. Couple of players came to me. I won't disclose them. Damian Lillard and Giannis Antetokounmpo, or maybe Brooke Lopez himself. <laughs> they wanted Brooke deeper in a drop. I was smart enough to listen to them, and it paid off tonight. Now, certainly against the this Knicks team, 
in particular. I, I think it makes more sense to go that way. And I will defend Griffin some because, you know, he got the job thinking that this was going to be the team that it was last year and that you're going to have Drew Holiday. And so the idea of pressuring up, forcing more turnovers, Knicks only had 10 turnovers in this game, was probably made a lot more sense with the personnel that they, he thought that he was going to have when he interviewed and even that he thought he was going to have up until three days before training camp. And I mean, that's what Giannis wanted to do. They wanted this thing of, of Giannis guarding the other team's best players more as well. You know, I don't think that works as well when you don't have Drew Holiday, when uh, you kind of need Giannis's room protection, which is not, I, I mean, the I haven't seen every Bucks game, but Giannis's room protection has been, I haven't felt that much, uh, even in the times when he's been playing with Bobby Portis defensively. And maybe part of that is because he's playing more on the perimeter. He did hound Julius Randle into another atrocious night, which we'll get to. But that was the big deal is that Brook Lopez is not more drop. He had been up more um, and they were just getting completely sliced apart by the Raptors in particular on, on Wednesday where they just got totally blown out and gave up anything that the Raptors wanted at the rim. Great percentage, ton of looks, just like completely unrecognizable defense and so getting Brook Lopez back around the rim and having him get eight block shots. I mean, this was just this is a game when trying to score inside just wasn't going to go too well for Despite. Another storyline to me in this one was Damian Lillard in the fourth quarter. You know, we've Dame time has been a thing for a long time, but he's on a on a different squad now. And 15 of Milwaukee's 28 points in the fourth quarter had also just a huge night at the free throw line, 12 of 12 overall. So he, you know they needed those, especially with all the ones His that Giannis missed. His free throw rate is like is like point six five right now. It's insane. It's ludicrous. And Lord actually had some big defensive plays. You know he had he, yeah some flubs. You know like where he gets a little bit spacey and lose something. But he had a a deflection and he had a block a, a, a late relatively late in the game. I don't think he's like uh, a good def- on Brunson. After mm-hmm. I mean, well, first of all, he overhelps with Giannis guarding Julius Randle. He overhelps. Jalen Brunson moves a little bit, and Brunson hits the three to go up two. But then uh, Lillard did get a stop on Brunson after that, and that was uh, sandwiched by uh, him scoring six points in a row after they went down two to ice the game. And including that great run where he just basically beat Quentin Grimes to the basket and gets gets the ball and gets an and one. Can I talk about that play, by the way? Of course. So Brunson misses the jump shot over Lillard, and he and Julius Randle just start walking back. Mitchell Robinson is back, but he's got two. His man, Brooke Lopez, and there's also Jay Crowder in the corner. And just, you know, Quentin Grimes is supposed to guard Damian Lillard, so he's not going to go run all the way back to the corner. And, like, Tom Thibodeau, if he watches the film of this, he's going to be livid because the, then Chris Middleton, like, Mitchell Robinson just has to stay back. He's got two, so Chris Middleton just slams his man into Brooke Lopez's screen, and Mitchell Robinson can't be there because he also has to protect the rim. You can see Mitchell Robinson just, like, frantically pointing, like, there's two guys here. Someone get back here. Nobody's running back to get them. And then Chris Middleton kind of saunters into the lane. Everyone has to react. And then Damian Lillard sprints behind Quentin Grimes after that. So, like, three guys just, like, didn't react, didn't play hard enough in, like, the most important possession of the game when you're down by one. And, like, Damian Lillard gets an and one layup with just nobody there. It was atrocious. It, it really was. And I brought up the Knicks moxie. That is a great counterexample to that. And, and and it's like, oh, it's one play. Yeah, but it, it's arguably the most important possession of the game. 
another play that I thought the Bucks ran that was really good. This is going to be a tough one. Is Giannis? I think it was. He might have been Brook Lopez on the wings and ATO. Lillard starts in the corner, goes back door, and then just circles all the way back around to the wing right next to where he started in the corner for a three. That was the play where he hits the three to put him back up one, a lead that they would not relinquish. Uh, Tom Thibodeau certainly went for it with Jalen Brunson, 42 minutes, 45 points, 17 of 30 from the field. Uh, did only have four assists, uh, four turnovers. But the Bucks, I think, were pretty focused on trying to take away the basket a little bit more. And, I mean, yeah, you know what? They don't have anyone to guard Jalen Brunson. Like It, it was Jay Crowder closing it out down the end. It was Malik Beasley who had his minutes cut. I mean, another one of these things, like Malik Beasley, like, how is he taking one three-point attempt? Like, I just, like, they're, if you're not going to, like, look for him at the three-point line, like, you, there's not really much point in playing him at that point. So, uh, you know, and Crowder shot it well, four of six uh, from three. He had 14 points. He earned the close, but he's too slow to guard Jalen Brunson down the end. So, yeah, I mean, the perimeter defense is not going to be great. I think they clearly had to go back to Brook Lopez in a drop and just trying to take away the rim a little bit more and just dealing with, you know, they're just going to suck defensively on the perimeter. But the whole idea is they're supposed to outscore teams. And, yeah, they shot 20 and 39 for three, but they were, like, negative 30% from two in this game. Again, like, they're, like Giannis only took 10 field goal attempts. This whole idea, oh, yeah, the Dame, uh, Dame Giannis pick and roll. Like, Giannis been coming downhill, getting all these dunks. Like, Giannis was 6 of 10, 7 of 13 for the free throw line with seven turnovers in this game he was plus 13 the Knicks did come back when he was out of the game but like their defense isn't going to be good enough to like be what powers them in a championship like they need to be a top five offense at minimum to get there and it just looks very clunky right now like the the two games of them that I've seen in full they just have not been getting easy shots and Julius Randle was five of 20 <laughs> he's he's shooting like 25 percent on the it's like one of the basically the worst I think ESPN had this it's the worst start and going five and 20 actually reduced his shooting percentage from like 27%. He shot 25% today. This is the worst start on the type of volume that he's had basically in like 25 years. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, my, to me, I didn't, I, admittedly, you know, we talked about it. didn't Dallas Denver wasn't my biggest focus, but to me, it was the, the parts I watched, the inability for Dallas to to get a stop. Now, Denver is maybe the hardest team to stop in the league, but that is going to be a problem for them in, in key moments. And I mean, Dallas is four and what? They were undefeated going into this game. But that is, you know, we'll, we'll wonder about that for them the entire season and then into the playoffs or play in or wherever they end up. Yeah, as we transition to this game, Denver just went out early and they were up 10 basically the whole game and i think dallas maybe got back within five at a couple of points but denver never really sweat i talked to yesterday in our little preview about how i thought this would be a good test for the denver defense and i thought they passed it quite well michael porter jr they tried to isolate on him i didn't think that he you know luka Doncic was just like completely destroying him i thought luka was extremely concerned about trying to draw fouls and every time he made a move that was a specific foul drawing move he did not get the call and he grew more and more frustrated and his defense in in transition lagged more and more uh that's another aspect where denver is going to have the advantage here but they just have so much more size and athleticism than the mavs do right like at one point the the Mavs are playing Jaden Hardy, who has been a pretty good spot of shooter so far. Jaden Hardy, Kyrie, who came back for this game, Luca, Josh Green, and Grant Williams at center. And that's just not enough size against Denver. Like, yeah, okay, you can, 
you'd say, hey, if some of these teams are going to outscore, you're not going to outscore the Denver Nuggets because they have Nikola Jokic. And Grant Williams, all right, he could be semi-decent against Jokic, but then nobody else has any, has any size. They don't have any help defense. I thought they looked the best when they put Lively on Aaron Gordon and Grant on Jokic, but that still wasn't amazing. And they were getting run out of the gym at, at times with that group too. They had a stretch in the second quarter where Lively was uh, affecting things around the rim at least a little bit. And so, yeah, I, I mean, Dallas is a very good offensive team. They shot the ball pretty well. They were spreading the floor really well, like, but they just, they weren't scoring. It looked like the Nuggets were scoring with zero resistance. Sure. And that's even when they went two of 16 for mid. I mean, they, that's the one thing you could point to is they force them to take 16 twos outside of the paint. And, but Denver also scored 34 field goals in the paint. <laughs> and Dallas, I mean, they just have one guy who can protect their own. Now, Dallas, I was without Maxi Kleba in the end with this dislocated pinky toe. I don't think he would have particularly changed things. Maybe he and Grant together would have been a slightly more viable group. And, you know, this was Kyrie's first game back, but it, like it didn't look like Luca was just completely having his way against these guys because they're very connected. You know, yeah, they put two on the ball to Jokic, but they got a lot of athletes who can fly around. So that that was my biggest takeaway was this is I don't know if it was the playoffs last year or what it was, but I, I think Denver's defense just looks much improved. You you throw in a Peyton Watts into that group uh, as well coming off the bench and he's probably a better certainly a better athlete and better defender than the guys they had in that spot a year ago so just a, another workmanlike win for Denver I didn't see their game against Minnesota where they got smoked but that was really more of an offensive loss uh, they haven't really had a, a point other than a couple times when Jokic has gotten in foul trouble this year where their defense has, hasn't looked competent and that's all that they need uh, with the how good their offense is and Jokic uh, was obviously fantastic I guess we should say his line just just for posterity 33 points 14 rebounds nine assists and oh yeah you know 14 of 16 from the field just incredible Jamal Murray at 13 assists I would guess that was a career high for him Nope, 14, twice. Wow, okay. That's a, that's a surprise. Oh, actually, sorry. I, I, I missed a 15. You had a 15 in um Ooh. against the aforementioned Dallas Mavericks in December of 2018. Can't say I remember that game. But I yeah, mean, you should because Jokic. Jokic started alongside Mason Plumley. <laughs> Wait, can I just briefly say Denver's starting five in that game? Jamal Murray, Torrey Craig, Juancho Hernan Gomez, Plumley, and Jokic. Yeah. Times were a little different back then. I did, I did not see the Denver Nuggets becoming this level of juggernaut back at that point. Although they would end up being the two seed that season in the end. And uh, another thing, too, I thought Aaron Gordon, he just provides another problem for these teams that just are kind of small. You know, where he'll just isolate. He blew by Luca for a dunk at one point with like a quick decision isolation. I did think that Zeke Daji trying to guard Luca that probably not that great. Uh, and Denver's bench was a little bit more negative uh, than they have been recently. So that that was uh, you know, Jokic played 36 minutes. If they're going to do this switching, uh, but you know, there's not many centers that are going to guard Luka Doncic particularly well. Either. So Luka was kind of just able to to get to his right hand against Naji, and uh, he missed a couple of finishes that he would normally make, but he was able to get good looks there. But for Denver to win this comfortably, when Dallas goes 17 of 42 from three, they put up a buck 25. What was their offensive rating in this game? 128. Yeah, and they also had 19 offensive. Jokic yeah, 46% offensive rebound rate. 
So let's finish off with this. What did you think was the most consequential result related to the in-season tournament, the NBA Cup today? So I'm I'm torn a little bit between the the favorites, the the home the home like group can take the home potential group winners who just took care of business. And I would say that's the bucks and the nuggets where like they had game opponents, you know, the, the Knicks, that game was close late in Dallas, but I think it's Cleveland, Indiana, because the Cavs are now in a much tougher spot. Their game against Philly, who's the other kind of dangerous team in this group is in Philadelphia. And so that means for Cleveland, not only to win the group, but to finish to finish in the a in that wild card spot, meaning the best second place finisher, that's going to be hard for them to do. Not impossible, but hard. Yeah, we'll see if if they can get everyone firing uh, on all cylinders. I think they were unlucky that their first game was today, as opposed to like the Kings, for example, where Darren Fox is going to get a little longer to rest. So yeah, that's probably. I mean, I guess that was the biggest technical upset. I think Golden State winning on the road at OKC I mean, anytime. Like you're kind of holding serve at home anytime you can get a road win in these games. Was that who else won on the road? That was it, right? That was the only no, Brooklyn. Was, oh, Brooklyn. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I wasn't thinking either of those teams were you know, huge threats to the Celtics uh, as of yet. But yeah, so I would probably say Golden State because I think had Golden State lost that, they would have been out of it, I, I think, or, or pretty close to it. They would have, they would have had to run the table. Yeah. I mean, you could say the same of, of like a, uh, eh, probably not Denver, but, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It was uh, Indiana beating Cleveland. Like that, that was the only instance of like what we would say is a, a clearly worse team in theory winning. So yeah, it's probably going to be that. But yeah, I don't think anything really got totally upended. But I, I would say actually that that is a mark in the, in the tournament's favor so far, at least that good teams came out, played hard and won. And it wasn't like they were just like messing around and you're just going to see these baseball playoffs type of results where it's not necessarily the best teams who are going to be in there. We'll see, obviously, that that could change because we have six more pods of games here before we actually get to the quarterfinals. But I think because that's another thing that I think could kind of mess this up. Like, yeah, you might have a couple of Cinderella's in there, but if all the best teams are just out because they just didn't try or guys were resting or whatever, they didn't take it seriously, then that will, I think, reduce the value of this thing. If you've got Steph Curry, you know, playing against Dame Lillard and Giannis Antetokounmpo in the final or, or, you know, Denver versus Boston or something in the final, it's like, you know, kind of, like, oh, this could be a finals preview. That's going to make this seem a lot more legitimate too. So uh, I'm at least this first time, I'm not rooting for like huge upsets. I mean, I'd like to see a couple of Cinderella's make the quarterfinals, but I hope that all the big boys make it because that's what that'll make the final uh, a really big event to have. And they will. And and also just like having some heavy hitters in the end in a single elimination format, which we've just never seen teams like that in it. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to feel like a game seven because the stakes won't feel as high, at least at first. But yeah, I I think it's be fascinating. And particularly if there's like 500K on the line and particularly if it's uh, some of the players have said this, like. Yeah, for like the two-way guys, that's going to double their salaries. Like, yeah, I'm sure that the stars on the team really want to do that for some of the the younger guys who are less established. Just make it, make them 500 grand by winning this thing. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll be back 15 and six. We're going to do it tomorrow, actually, because we got a lot to get to. So we'll talk to you all then. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.